Welcome to the Sendcast. My name is Dale Pickles and I'm the host of the Sendcast. The Sendcast concept started a few years ago as a way to improve knowledge around SEND. There is lots of stuff you can go and read, but we're all really busy and we don't have time to do it. Everyone working in schools needs training and support around SEND, but the funding isn't there to achieve this. The Sendcast is also a great way to get the same consistent message to schools and parents. Every week on the Sendcast, we have a different guest that has come along to talk about an area they are passionate about. My guest this week is Gary Auburn. Gary is the Send Content Specialist for the Education Endowment Foundation. This week, we are discussing the importance of using an evidence-based approach to decision-making. The Sendcast is created and produced by us here at B-Squared. Over the last 25 years, B-Squared have supported schools to support students with SEND. And over the last few years, we have diversified. For years, we have focused on assessment. This will always be our main focus, but we have seen a lack of high-quality, easy-to-access training in CPD for schools around SEND. Our online CPD offering, Training for Education, started three years ago with a virtual SEND conference, but now includes a range of training courses as well as our conferences. You can find out more about our conferences and training courses by going to the Training for Education website, which is www.trainingforeducation.com. And at the end of the episode, I'll be sharing an exclusive Sendcast discount code, so keep listening. Let's get on with the podcast. In this week's show, we're discussing the importance of using an evidence-based approach to decision-making. My guest this week is Gary Auburn. Gary is the SEND Content Specialist for the Educational Endowment Foundation and the Director of SEND for a Multi-Academy Trust. You may also know Gary from his book, The Lone Senko, Questions and Answers for the Busy Senko, or his blog, sendmatters.co.uk. Welcome to the show, Gary. Thanks very much, Dale. Lovely to be here. Excellent. So lots of people know the EEF or should know the EEF from their teaching and learning toolkit, a tool that helps you see the different areas that impact the learning, the impact, the cost and the strength of the evidence. And this is a really good resource as it helps schools to quickly easily identify what works and what doesn't work. And that evidence, I think, is a really important part in that, isn't it? Yeah, I agree, Dale. And I mean, clearly, that's the that's the EEF's thing, isn't it? Is they believe that you know actually there's there's really important power of evidence, and I think it's difficult to know sometimes, isn't it, whether you're existing in your own bubble. But my perception is certainly that the notion of evidence is becoming more of a key thing within education. So I know that that Nadim Zahawi has talked a lot about about you know well, let's follow the evidence and let's look at what the evidence suggests. And you hear that word being used a lot in the context of the DfE Send Review, which I know is due to come out soon. But then also within the pupil premium and the way schools now need to report on how they are linking their pupil premium strategy to to evidence around around what works. So my feeling, and I hope it's not just the echo chamber, is that evidence is becoming more of a a pertinent thing. And that certainly for school leaders, but also for classroom teachers and other other school-based staff, actually the notion of let's be led by what works, knowing that that's not the whole story, but actually it's an important part of the story and an important part of helping us get it right for students is really important. I think what people sometimes do is, and it can be quite, you, you see something which works in a school and you just try and take that one thing and put it into your school. And sometimes that doesn't work. Although the evidence is there and it works, it's, it's the wider picture. It is, you can't just take one thing and drop it in and expect it to make a difference. 
it's you often have a look at the wider picture. What else is that working along with? Yeah, well, and I totally agree. And I think there's this, I speak to colleagues at the EEF and there's a bit of a dilemma between if we make something look really simple and straightforward, then more people are likely to go, okay, this is for us. But actually the more, you know, you can oversimplify things, can't you? So the more simplistic you make something appear, actually you're losing some of the essential complexity and some of the need to think actually how does this work within our setting. So the EEF talk about the evidence needs to go alongside professional expertise if you're going to have evidence-informed practice in your setting. So evidence-informed practice clearly is not just going, well, this works over there. So kids, here's a book, you know, a textbook from this program that's worked somewhere, so off you go. And, and that I think what the EEF would never do is try and undermine the importance of the, of the professionalism of the role of, of the teacher or, or other or teaching assistants, other, other staff in school as being absolutely essential if this is going to work. And then, of course, it needs to work in your setting as well. And the EEF have got some guidance around implementation and making the point that sometimes schools need to work out what not to do before they work out what new thing they're going to do. And just doubling the amount of things that a school's going to do isn't, isn't likely to make a positive difference for students. And actually, it's going to cause clearly teacher burnout and, and not be very good for teacher well-being. I've, I've seen that a lot. I, you go to schools and we have our assessment products and I've been to schools and they go, we're going to choose B squared. It's going to do this, 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 this. And we go through it all. And you see someone goes, it's going to replace this. They go, no. And you just see the teacher start going, and this is doubling the workload. Yeah. So it is important when you introduce something, really working out what is this going to replace? Is it going to clash with something we're already doing? And things like, so it's, yeah, you've got to think the wider picture workload does it fit in in many things you've got to take into consideration yeah i agree and it's it's with assessment it's particularly pertinent isn't it because you might go our system you know it can be challenging to get a whole school of staff to meet a certain deadline around when the assessment marks need to be in so that we can get the reports out to parents on time for example and actually if you're then going well instead of this one system we've got two systems and sometimes two systems is needed because students were send don't all neatly perhaps fit into into one system and we need to report in a slightly different way to make it meaningful for, for the young people and for the parents, which it needs to, needs to be. We need to, to track assessment accurately. But there's always a balance, as I say, about making sure that that becomes workable in a school. But I, I think that notion of evidence is, is the right one, isn't it? And going, let, let's be guided what, by what people have learned before me. So if I'm teaching a year seven nurture group literacy, and it's maybe it's my second or third year of doing it. And so I've got two or three years of my own sort of cycles of going, what's going to work here? Now, now no one's suggesting, and the EEF aren't suggesting, that you abandon your own reflective thinking and your own ability to look at whether this is working in my setting for these young people. But actually to be able to be guided by what's been proven to work in other settings is clearly better to know than not know. And if you're hammering away at something that has got no evidence of working elsewhere, then you might see some, you know, it might there might be some exceptions because of what you're doing. That means that it still shows some promise, but there's going to be something better you could do if it's been shown to work in another setting. So not taking a sort of blind approach to let's do it without that level of reflection or thinking, but clearly it, ha it has its place. So for those who haven't seen the EEF toolkit, so it's basically, I'm going to simplify it down to one big grid <laughs> with various columns in of what it is, the cost, the evidence, so, and it's like a, a one to five scale for each of those. So how much does it cost? Is it free? Is it very expensive? The next column is how much evidence is there to say this works or not? And then the final column, it's got a score of, of the impact, hasn't it? 
Yeah, so it tells you the strength of the evidence in padlocks. So if it's if there's a lot of very good evidence that to back up this thing. So let's talk about metacognition, for example, which is right there at the top. It's an additional, I think, seven months progress is the aggregated score. So if, if a school or a teacher takes an approach where metacognition is part of their, you know, one one apparatus of their teaching practice, then students can make an additional seven months progress when aggregated based on the studies that exist that are relevant to mainstream schools in England. So there's a few sort of caveats and it's within a certain cohort and context, of course. That doesn't mean all the studies were in English mainstream schools, but if they were in American, Australian schools, schools with deemed to have similar education systems, that would still be um, deemed as appropriate and relevant evidence, for example. So, but with the teaching and learning toolkit, yeah, it, it's it's a it's oversimplistic, of course, but it's a way into it. So people would look at that and go, metacognition, okay, this is a good approach according to evidence from other schools that are relevant to my setting. And then the the sensible thing to do is to click on the button and read a bit underneath it and see, okay, what what are the sort of what is it within this that I need to be doing in particular, and where does it rely on whole whole school approach and a sort of school level buy into this. And how much is it something that me and my teaching practice can do in my classroom and it has the same benefit? So there are there are things underneath it always. And I think the teaching and learning toolkit is a really good starting point for what to what's really worth learning more about because it's got a good evidence base. And conversely, what there is no evidence base around. And that's, I think, just as key is to go, ah, actually, this thing that I think is really incredible and, and bright and flashy and new and um, has a great name. Well, actually, there's there's no particular evidence base, and sometimes there's an ev- sometimes there just isn't the evidence. That doesn't mean it doesn't work. It means that there's not enough evidence to suggest that it does yet, and it may well, but we're not there yet, um, and the evidence base isn't there yet. Or it may be actually that this is deemed to to do not much for young people. And the one that was very contentious quite a few years ago was around teaching assistant deployment. And I know you you talked about this in this podcast before. And, it's it's a total oversimplification to say that harm is done by teaching assistants when they work with young people, because we all know in our practice that that the opposite is true in almost all cases. But what it did do, I think, is really highlight some practices that weren't helpful around creating independence and that sort of learned helplessness or that stigma. Those things that are quite well known now, I think, about unhelpful teaching assistant habits or, or teacher habits, actually, that do too much for young people in some ways and for children and, and where they need to um, develop that independence themselves. But it comes back to that principle, doesn't it, of let's be informed by what the studies suggest and then let's make our own sort of, let's use our own professional judgment to think about it in in terms of my setting, my classroom, these three children, for example. I'm a parent of two children and I think that parents are terrible for, for thinking that their own case study of, in my case, two is enough to to think, oh, I know parenting, and to say um, to another, to to a friend who's got children, ah, well, what you should be doing is, and and of course I'd never do that, but I think I think we all we all find ourselves, we all hear ourselves doing it a little bit, and then to go, well, actually, my case study of two probably isn't the best sample size for saying that I know what good parenting is, and actually, if we can be informed by, um, you know, when we change that to teaching, we can be informed by what others have done, uh, in in many cases hundreds of teachers working with thousands of children, we're much better to be informed by the evidence base than to go, I'll only go off my own experience. Not that your own experience isn't valid, but it isn't the whole picture. I find it interesting when you have kids, you often, you have people on different stages in that parenting journey. My kids are currently 15 and 13. My colleague has children who are, top of my head, I think like year four and uh, year one or so so much younger much further down the path and it's so easy for me to say oh yeah watch out for this watch out for this and I said to him 
I'm going to really try and not tell you anything because they're all different and Correct. you don't want someone telling you this is how it is, this is how it's going to be, and it doesn't work for you. So I'm going to keep my mouth. There are a few things I said, right, yeah, I've learned this the hard way. So if you mm. yeah, don't do this. But generally it's the don't do this because you think it's going to be work. And things like that. So generally, and what you'll find is whatever you're doing in life, there's always generally going to be someone who's done it more and someone who's done it less. So you might be doing this new approach and you might be doing it for six months, but you can find someone who's done it for a year and you might find someone who's just starting. And it's always interesting to find out other people's experiences doing the same thing. One of the things I loved with the EEF toolkit is I literally, I sorted it, I think as everyone does, what is the most effective? Mm -hmm. what's, the, what's going to be the biggest ad? And that's, that was quite surprising because you kind of, you look at your, your time in education, you look at things you've seen done and a lot of those are much further down the list or even at the bottom. Mm. And there's some things which are going on in, I was a governor going on in the school where at the, this has no, this has no impact yet. And it really helped us to sit there and question, well, we've always done it. It's like, doesn't mean it's the right thing. Yeah. And there's a real problem with we've always done it. And I, I don't take that problem lightly because actually changing what you do if it's something sort of feels like it's it's in an okay position actually to change it well there's there's probably 10 things that you could think of that aren't going as well and and aren't the things that you know things that you definitely can't leave alone so to add an 11th with something that sort of feels steady but the teaching and learning toolkit tells you is actually quite ineffective that's really challenging for for school leaders or for teachers or for senkos because you're going well it's it's actually something that I, I didn't have at the top of my list because i thought it was all right for now Anyway, it's this notion of being formed by evidence, isn't it? And if we think about learning to teach and your teacher training, the sort of evidence uninformed approach to that would be, you know, there's your classroom, off you go, sort of work it out and just sort of explore what works and what doesn't as you go. And your professional judgment can, can help you get through. And actually, teacher training would never be like that, would it? It needs to be informed by academic studies and things, but, but generally by, by classroom practice and by, by what people do that is more effective in helping to manage a classroom, but also to, to, to ensure students learn. And then, but I think when it comes to SEND, actually, people are a bit more split on the topic. And I've found that people are generally very open to the EEF and more so, I started working with them in September and more so than I'd feared, because I think that some people say quite rightly that actually young children, young people with SEND are not one homogenous group. That, and that encompasses an enormous range of needs and abilities and strengths and challenges and all those things. And of course, that's true with or without SEND. But I think some people use that to go, actually, it's not about evidence. It's about personalization. And it's about it's about in, thinking about the individual child. And I would I would argue to that, that both things can be true. So if we're if we're thinking about the evidence base, firstly, there is an evidence base that is informed by by children and young people with SEND. And that's what I think a lot of people don't know firstly, is when they think about evidence around what works in education, they go, yes, but these children, that's about neurotypical children. I work primarily with children with SEND. And so, you know, it, it's a different, it's a different set of things. And so firstly, the thing I've been speaking to people about this year, and, and many people are aware of this, but some aren't, that there is a real evidence base for SEND. And so on the EEF's work within SEND, there's the first, in terms of to, to, to talk through the process slightly, they work with a university who bids to do this piece of work. They agree a series of research questions, which include, for example, um, what is high quality teaching for SEND? Um, what does good SEND leadership look like? And then from that, um, there's, there's a, they look through, you know, 
all the academic papers that, that can be found. So they, they review, um, I think they looked at over 100 meta-analyses and each of those meta-analyses is clearly looking at many studies itself. So actually they're looking at thousands of studies that are specifically with a cohort of students with SEND. And we're not pretending that that cohort is homogenous. That will still include lots of different needs. But, but you know, for example, for that question around high quality teaching, um, there were um, 1,273 abstracts of papers looked looked at which sort of met the initial criteria for um uh, for for answering that research question around what is high quality teaching for send and then clearly that was whittled down along the way to a smaller number um that you know that had that really high level of relevance to english mainstream classrooms but actually it's, it's you know it shows the breadth of search and the breadth of information that that isn't by no means complete but there is an evidence base out there that means we can make good um, best bets, I think is a term used in the EEF a lot. It's not about this will work, go and do it. But this is a best bet. You're better off trying this than than that other thing for which either there is no evidence base or there's an evidence base that actually it can be quite harmful. I think it's important to remember, although yeah, neurotypical children or neurotypical people are all different, they will have similarities. Yeah, you might have two different children, but in this area, they're similar. And in that area, they're similar. In this area, they're completely different. In that area, don't even ask. But there are things that would be common with children. So it, you can't just dismiss it and say, oh, it's all going to be personal. Is the kind of the generic approaches won't necessarily work for everyone, but actually you might be able to take that approach and tweak it that way for that child and tweak it that way for that child, but the approach will still work. Yeah, I absolutely agree. It's about that nuance sometimes, isn't it? It's not about throwing the baby out with the bathwater. It's about finding how what nuance does this need? And it, it doesn't replace individual needs. It's not about going, um, well, there is an evidence base here around high quality teaching and I just need to do that and keep going. And even if it's not working for a child to keep going, hammer it home because someone else in another school, it worked for them. So, no, so clearly it doesn't um, address every challenge. It's not the answer to every question. Um, and for a child who's got a visual impairment, they may well need a size 28 font because that's what their clinical report says and that's what works for them and that's what a recent eye test that they've had has confirmed. And there's no getting around that. There's no external evidence base that will support with, with, um, with, with that child needing that. And likewise, if a child who's autistic really benefits from a now and next board that's on their desk that's explicitly pointed to and changed at different moments in their day, Again, there's nothing, there's no point, you know, sort of throwing an external evidence base um, in front of that child and going, let's just do these things that, that work for others. But I think the point with the external evidence base around what works for children with SEND is it can reduce the amount of individual needs that you have to personalise for and cater for individually. So I know we're going to talk about this perhaps in another podcast, Dale, about high quality teaching in a bit more detail. But, but what the EEF research has found is that um, there are some some sort of universal level approaches that work really well for students with SEND around, for example, explicit instruction and some of the, um, the some of the the work of Rosenshine, for example, and that ten step model. So, if you can meet more needs through those whole class approaches, you won't meet every need. The size twenty eight font or the now and next board, whatever's needed, is individual. But you can meet more needs. So for children with moderate learning difficulties, um, with speech and language needs, um, with, um, uh, with with a range of needs that we can't always put a label on, um, actually, more of those needs can be met at the universal level through really good teaching. That means there's more space for that teacher 
to, to do those individual adaptations where they need to. So they don't need to go, right, I've got six strategies in my, in one, in my left hand here because you have a speech, language and communication need. And I've got another six strategies in my other hand here because you have a specific learning difficulty. And I've got another six learn six strategies in my, on my resting gently on my foot because you have a social, emotional, mental health need. Actually, that becomes unworkable for a teacher. So there's a few reasons, I think, why giving multiple strategies, and I've done it myself as a Senko, I must admit, giving multiple strategies about different children within the same class becomes a lesson that has no um, no drive, no direction, isn't cohesive, and the teachers um, up until midnight planning, and then in the delivery of the lesson, they're trying to deliver three or four different lessons because there are students with different need types within the same class, of course. So actually what the, the, the research has found from the EEF is, no, it's okay, there are some sort of broad universal level things you can do around, for example, cognitive and metacognitive strategies that the evidence suggests are really helpful for students with SEND among other students. It's not going to be harmful for anyone and it will be helpful for, for, for all students, including those with SEND. And if you adopt those into your teaching practice, that's going to be really helpful and allow you a bit more headspace to do those smaller number of individual adaptations where they're needed. Definitely. If you think of um, like initial teacher training as you kind of you're building a house and that initial teacher training is you're putting in the walls and the foundations and the structure. And over the last 50, 60, 100 years, we've kind of changed how we've built that house. As we've learned things, this evidence base is built and well, actually this is working. This is a better way of doing things. We have changed. We've adapted things, technology and new approaches and things like that. So for years, those foundations, those walls have changed and you go into the classroom, you have the foundation, you have the walls, and then you're going to decorate that house based on where you are and your what works for you. And that's kind of your, your teachers. And then your children come in and you're going to use a furniture to suit the children. But the foundations and the walls are often the same. Um, and a phrase you always hear on the podcast is what works for SEN works for all. And what really what we should be doing is rather using the age-rated expectations, foundations and walls, which works for them, is actually these foundations are much better. These walls are much better. They work for a much wider group of pupils. Um, as you said, it doesn't do any damage. It actually supports every child um, because those who are age-related might have a small difficulty somewhere. And by doing it this way, it will just make things clearer. And there's so many benefits. And if we just change those foundations and walls to work for wider what you're going to end up is something which is more suitable for everyone. So the house will be more suitable. Um, there'll be less modifications needed. And, you, and it's kind of, it's not one size fits all. You're still going to have to decorate. You're still going to have to furnish for those children coming into you in your class. But you should be more prepared. You should have better expectations to meet, as you said, a wider variety of needs. My mum always found out IEPs interesting. Because you go to some schools and every child has an IEP. Mm -hmm. And my mind, it's an individualized education plan. And the way she explained to me, which makes so much sense, is you have your classroom plan, and that should cover this. And you write it really well. You write it to cover 80% of your children. And only the 80%, it doesn't cover, only 20% doesn't cover, you have IEPs for, because they don't fit into there. Which mm -hmm. made so much sense to me, because that is, in theory, you should be trying to um, apply to the biggest group in your class as possible to support them. And if that means you're doing this for everyone, and for some people it makes no benefit, it just makes life easier for everyone, then it makes sense to do that. Absolutely. And there's, you, you see that in the, in the legislation, I think, at the moment, around adaptive teaching, which is um, 
you know, cynically is a buzzword, but actually I think represents a bit of a, a different approach um, to differentiation and to, to to IEPs and things. And so the, the 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 ideal clearly is that the lesson is planned and delivered with every child in mind, and that what you don't need to do or aim to do is teach lots of different lessons to different children. But you do think I'm gonna I'm gonna need to do something. I'm going to tailor it as I go in my planning and as I go based on on, on how students are finding it um, and how, how much of the learning content students are picking up. And as a teacher, you're going to understand, I think, that um, not all children will gain everything that you're teaching. Children learn in different ways and at different rates. We don't wait for 100% mastery from everyone before we move on. We appreciate that some students will access the learning at the moment at a slightly different level to others, um, but that we're adaptive to that and that we know what's the real sort of aspirational um, hard stuff that we want everyone to get to ideally, but we know that some won't yet and that's okay. Um, but actually what's the foundations of learning that every child in that class needs to get um, in a way that's meaningful for them but before we move on. And so it's that, that uh, uh, and adapting there as a live process. So, um, so through the questions we ask, that's our way or the AFL strategies we use, actually they're the ways of finding out in the moment, what does a particular child need? So it's not starting a lesson by going, you're my table of students on the send register. And here's the lesson for you students on my send register or and or lower retaining students. This is the lower retaining table. And this is the lesson I've prepared for them. And everyone knows it because from the, you know, it, no matter what you call it, you can call it the rabbit table or the, you know, the blue table or whatever, but actually children know it, don't they? Yeah. Um, and similarly in secondary, the language around bottom sets and sync groups and in a really unhelpful language there. Um, but actually it's one lesson and it's delivered to everyone and we don't go, these are the different worksheets for the, for my lower table. What we might do is, is think, reflect on, well, I've got this lesson and there's an independent writing task here and some students are going to struggle to be able to do that independently. So I'll need to create a scaffold of some kind that's maybe got some prompts on some sentence starters or some key vocabulary or some icons that sort of indicate the order to do things or the materials needed or, you know, all those things that can, can fit under that big umbrella of scaffolding. Um, but it's then thinking, what's the, what's the least stigmatizing way to do this? So I don't go, Oh, you're, you're on the send register and there you go. There's, there's the worksheet for you because you can't do independent work. Um, actually you might have a few of them and you put a couple on each table and you just sort of steer some students towards If that's a, bit tough you might want to use this to help you um, or you might put it on the class whiteboard so that no one has it on their desk in front of them and finds that a bit stigmatizing but actually it's a, it's a scaffold that anyone can access and then we'll discourage some students from doing so and challenge students to try and actually find their own way of completing this task but it's not done in a way that reinforces that stigma of you're the children who need help and you're the children who don't need help um, yeah because clearly we need to give a message that all children need and young people need help sometimes irrespective of send need, um, uh, send status, irrespective of, you know, some students find find some things easier and harder than others. And one of those things in the EEF is, is around flexible grouping. So there's a recommendation in the EEF's SEN in mainstream guidance report that I'd really encourage people to look at if they haven't. It's got five recommendations in it. Um, one is ensuring access to high quality teaching, and it does unpick what that means so it, it talks about you know these five evidence-based approaches um and uh and one of which is flexible grouping so it's saying don't have this is my bottom set uh group or my my lower ability table but actually we're much more flexible than that so it's not pretending that that some students won't find things hard but we bring them together 
for a bit of reteaching before we then disband that group again. Or it might be children are on the carpet, anyone who wants me just to talk through that again, or the teacher might even say, just going to hold on you three just for a moment. I'm just going to make sure you're okay before they go off. But it's not a permanent, you're the people who always get help from the teaching assistant or who always sit on this table and and, and who I go to and, and sort of semi-complete the work for. Um, but it's more flexible than that. And actually, within flexible grouping, sometimes you can use the children's strengths and you purposefully set groups up that are mixability so that there's a bit of peer tutoring going on, um, a bit of collaborative learning where children are, you know, one child who might have picked something up a bit quicker can just help the others to understand what it is they need to do or what the inf- what the key information is there. So um, it's going, let's not create fixed sync groups or permanent tables, but for a certain period of time, it might be minutes, hours or weeks, but it's not, you know, the philosophy is that it's, it's, it's flexible and it's temporary rather than reinforcing a stigma and placing a ceiling on what students can do. I think it's always great when you have the mixed mixability is you do often have one child supporting another child because they can see they're struggling and they might just give, this is what worked for me. Or although she said this, or he said this, this is made that I do it this way. And just saying it that way or having someone to show them they're working as they go through it can make a big difference. But also some children come with a very different point of view which can really add to things. It can be really fascinating. Well, they've got different experiences. And I know from my daughter's experience, it's been a real benefit having a mixed grouping and things like that. And, and they sit there and sometimes they'll say something and as a parent, you go, really that? And you literally, you are doing that thing. You're judging him. You, you have from your putting him that he's a bottom set child in my head. And you go, well, he said that. And like, okay. And again, it's, it's helping me see that, in my head, I was told it is bottom set, middle set, and that set, and that's how life is. But it's not. It's people have different skills in different ways. And some children don't conform and fit into a certain way of working in school, but doesn't mean they're not really clever, really imaginative, have amazing ideas, can see things in amazing ways that can really add to things. They're just not doing it in that certain order that schools like. Exactly. And the most obvious example of that as a parent, I think, is that you see um, when you when your son or daughter is doing maths, isn't it? And um, uh, straight away, you know, you say, no, 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 actually, the way to do it is this. Um, and the way to do it was that when I was in school X years ago. But actually, the way to do that isn't that, <laughs> isn't that now. And that doesn't mean that's wrong. Of course, that's a slightly flippant example. But it's, yeah, there are, there are many ways to skin a cat, I think, is the phrase, isn't there? And um I, I love maths as well. And I love, yeah, my daughter's like, oh, you just do it this way. And they went, no. And I went, what do you mean, no? Let's go to the school website. Let's find the calculation policy and then just go, why? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I don't get it, indeed. Um, but but that um, one of the other recommendations within this um, SENN mainstream guidance report is about building an ongoing holistic understanding of your pupils and their needs. So along similar lines of what we've been talking about, really, Dale, it's it's not about... This is a, this person because they are autistic or have a speech and language need, for example, they're not fixed and they're not. Um, sorry, I, sorry, I don't mean fixed like not broken. I mean fixed like they're in one place and that never changes. So, a diagnosis may not change, um, and there are lifelong um, send needs, of course. Um, but actually, how that presents and what that child struggles with and what that child needs and what that child does really well and what that child can do independently. Well, that changes over time, of course. And I think as Senkos, we've all seen, um, I'm not a Senko now, I'm a, I'm a Send lead for a, for a multi-academy trust, but um, with the Senkos I work with, and when I was a Senko, 
what you see when you pick up um, uh, some information about a child who's new to secondary school um, is information about something that may have been true when they're about six or seven, but certainly isn't true now they're 11. And that could be about their interests, but it also could be about, you know, the, the kind of help they need in the classroom and, and the kind of things that they cannot yet do independently. And, and unless these things exist in that assess, plan, do review cycle, then actually we, we place that ceiling on children, don't we? Because we're saying that they they cannot do this and the things they find difficult are, are fixed and permanent. I think you particularly find that on SN registers around social, emotional and mental health because it's it feels sometimes like the hardest to put your finger on. And there are some sort of clear guiding questions, aren't there, within the code of practice, but they're not. Um, it's clearly, as many types of SEND aren't, it's not black and white often. It doesn't need a diagnosis in order to go on a SEND register as a social, emotional, mental health need. But also people are a bit hesitant to, to, to take it, take a child off a send register for that kind of thing, just sort of in the in the fear that that child might go unnoticed. So, and so unless you have systems in your school that allow for sort of constant review or frequent review at least, then you're going to miss those things, aren't you? And you're going to you're going to think that children's needs are fixed and permanent. There's a statistic that I forget, but around um, at the end of year eleven, I think fifteen percent of students will be on a send register. But actually, through their time in school, something like 40% of those children will have at some point been on that send register. And I really like that statistic. And it's a reminder for me to learn actually what the number is. But it, um, it really just says, you know, needs are not permanent. And, and there may be a diagnosis that's permanent. But actually, the amount that child does that child need special educational provision? Um, and if that's broadly the diagnosis, sorry, broadly the criteria for going on a send register. Do they need um, special educational provision to be made for him or her? Well, if they don't, then they shouldn't be there. And and maybe that that can be celebrated, can't be, sometimes if someone's had had a need and actually through their own hard work, the support of their family and the work that they've, um, the support they've received in school and outside school, maybe that that support isn't needed anymore. That's We, we celebrate that. So one of the things I, I, I really, I, I'm not a big fan of is... Um, pathways. They can be used really, really well. So I'm going to say that because often pathways mm. in terms of um, in terms of level of need and future um, next steps type thing, pathways, you can have your pathway one. What I really don't like is when you have pathways, like what you just said, based on a diagnosis. Oh, mm. so you've got autism. Well, here is all the stuff we do for autism. Mm. I hate that. I really do. Because mm. generally a child with autism doesn't just have autism. They have autism with a bit of salt on, a bit of pepper on, a bit of chilli on, a bit of that on. They have various flavours. So having a one-size-fits-all, and we used to use the term Asperger's and high-functioning and low-functioning. Mm. And and my, my nephew is, uh, we've got two nephews. One is, um, he's in year eight. Uh, he's on the 99th percentile IQ-wise, but mm. his processing, he's on the 13th percentile. Mm. So hugely intelligent, but processing speed much lower. Um, so he's struggling in mainstream, but when you look at specialist settings, a lot of the settings for autism are going, well, fun we'll do functional skills, English and maths with them. It's like, mm. no, I've got two nephews who are insanely intelligent mm. and they just need to be supported in a way that works for them, but they will go, they can go off and do degrees and everything with the right support, but the pathways available to them because autism within that authority is well, it's either mainstream, it's here or it's here. And, and mm. I just find certain things just don't fit. And 
we then easily put you put that ceiling on. Okay, yeah, well, because of this, you can only have access to this. And I, I really struggle with that. I, I agree with you, Dale. It's really tricky, isn't it? Because as a, as a Senko, you need to support um, teachers to have a good understanding of SEND. And so you then need to think, well, what do I focus on, actually? Because what I can do is have deeply individualised, personalised strategies for every child on the SEND register. And we've talked about the, the difficulties of that in terms of um, teacher workload and in terms of actually managing that in practice. Um well, then, do I just um, label children by their primary need and go for autistic children, these five things, for children with speech language need, these five things, et cetera? Um, well, there are issues with that because it doesn't personalise in quite the right way. Or do you go, this is high quality teaching. This is a set of inclusive teaching approaches that we're going to do for everyone. And here's a bit of information about individual children. Please read this. I don't expect you to memorise it, but please look at and reflect and read it sort of fairly frequently and reflect on how that then um you know influences your practice it's like those one page profiles i quite like that because it is a nice really quick if i'm doing my quality high quality teaching and i look at this this should give me those bits i just need to add in on top for that child yeah i agree i think they're they're in some ways they're the best worst option aren't they because what you could do is, um, you know, you could write a book on every single child in your classroom because they're all fascinating and individual, yeah. but actually then it's unworkable. Um, you could say everyone's, you know, everyone with an autism diagnosis did these five things and then children find teachers doing, using strategies that um, actually feel quite um, like like too much of a crutch and, and too much too much help, if you like. So, so yeah, I mean, I'm a big fan of one-page profiles as, a, um, as long as they have things around them. So they need to be, I think... Um, I'm still a bit of a paper fiend in, with those. I think then if you print it out, which I, maybe is just a sign of me being being a bit old, but print them out and ask people to read them in direct. Give people directed time in which to read them. Essentially, if there's if Wednesday after you know after school is the meeting time for the school, try and work with a senior leader to make sure that one Wednesday a term is we sit down and we look at these and we're all in the same room together and there's the opportunity to ask questions, to annotate, to say, I think this isn't true, to circle something that the teacher's going to try in their lesson tomorrow and just to keep them as live documents, but also not to just expect people to go and find the right subfolder on the system and do it in their own time, but to give people time to do them and then to make that information really accessible so it's not full of jargon. And actually to, to bring it back to the, the SEN in mainstream guidance report and these strategies for high quality teaching in particular, I think what people notice is, is it's not about finding a magic bullet and it's not about the sort of whizziest, newest strategy. It's about um, high quality teaching. And it's not about, uh, which I'll come back to in a second, but it's not about things where you need a master's in dyslexia in order to be able to deliver it. You don't need a master's in special educational needs to be able to deliver it. And, and you know, thank goodness you don't, because if you did, then we'd all be in trouble, wouldn't we? Because there, I, I, there's not enough SEND training in the system anyway, I don't believe. And statutory SEND, you know, statutory SEND training or, or training for teachers that means that SEND is woven into everything rather than a bolt-on. But actually... Um, um, you know, it, need, it needs to be, um, training needs to be built into everything. But if it takes a postgraduate level of training specifically in SEND in order to support students in classrooms, then we're in trouble, basically, aren't we? Because because not everyone can have that. So ha happily, the EEF evidence doesn't doesn't say that that's needed. It talks about high, these high quality teaching strategies. It does admit that they're not, it's not needs specific. So, it, so the EEF doesn't go into the detail of, and the evidence really suggests that for children with sensory processing disorder, you know, it just hasn't 
there isn't the strength or weight of evidence that means, and the work hasn't been done by the EEF, you know, quite simply, but but it's it partly led by where the evidence exists already. And that does mean clearly that more evidence needs to be generated in, in, in around SEND. I think most people will accept that there's there's not quite enough evidence, really strong evidence as well around around, around what is effective. I was going to touch on that one-page profile because when you talk about that, there's two things I've got to make sure I say. And one mm. is uh, it gets updated. <laughs> And the one yes. is, don't just stick it on a shared folder and hope people look at it. Oh, yeah. so many schools I've come across, they do that. And one thing I would say is if you are going to have a one-page pupil profile, stick the child's photo on it, especially yeah. in secondary settings. Reading a piece of paper and the kid's named Connor mm-hmm. is useless if there are 12 Connors in the school. Yes. Yeah. If you see that photo and go, it's him, and you, and you go, you might not even realise which class he's in. That's the thing. Mm. You've seen this one-page profile, you look at it, you, you, you go, Oh, okay. Yeah. It's that sort of thing. You won't realise unless you have a system which is already good for highlighting. Oh, but you won't. So having photos will hopefully make people realise. And again, in a secondary setting, you will have to, as a Senko, spoon feed each teacher. These are your five children to look at. These are your seven yeah. children to look at. You are. These are your four. Don't expect them to work out out of the hundred and twenty which children need to pay attention to. Yeah, you've got to spoon feed them to make it yeah. work. Yeah, I totally agree. Yeah, absolutely. These and what what we do in some of the second in my my other hat on my Matt Send lead hat on rather than EEF. Actually, we um we print off a whole section. Let's say there's 120 in a big secondary school. We print them all off, give them to the maths department, and say, right, first thing I'd like you to do, please, is to divvy them out. Who teaches so and so? Divvy them out, and everyone's got their own ones. And then that time begins to, to start looking through them and discussing them in a, in a department area or, or with all the staff there potentially. But but yeah, here are the ones for you rather than go and find them on Sims and go to the link documents and print it out, which just you know becomes a process that some will do. And inevitably, teachers through with no judgment whatsoever are incredibly busy and that will be a job that slips off the radar. And um, I think the fact you just said give it to department lead is probably the thing I've just loved most and this podcast already. Because mm-hmm. I do find that in a lot of secondaries, there's the school and then there's the SEN department. Mm-hmm. And it's like that. And I hear on Facebook things and groups, I see people going, oh, I've been asked to write a, a plan uh, for English for my SEN children. It's like, no, no, that's the English department's job and the yeah. math department's job. Yeah. It's the math department's job to look at these are the needs. These are the one-page profiles. How does everyone know how to do this? No, we don't. Okay, we need to support you. We're not quite sure. Then I'll ask the SEND department. But it is that department. They are supporting every single child in that school with maths with the support of the SENCO. Yeah, it's such it's a role that needs so many stakeholders, doesn't it? And I, and the, I gave a talk recently where I, I um, around CPD and SEND with um, Nason's Whole School SEND um, uh, network. And I was talking about how on day one of CPD, you get the, especially in a secondary school, um, you might have someone who leads on teaching and learning. And so they stand up and they say on day one of CPD in September, this is our approach to teaching this year. These are the things we're going to do. And then on day two of the, of the you know, the second inset day in September, the Senko stands up and says, um, this is our approach to teaching for SEND this year. This is what we're going to do. And then teacher, unless those things are really sort of aligned and thought through as one piece, actually teachers are going, well, is it is it what we were told yesterday or is it what we're told today? And Senkos need to be really well positioned in their school. And I think I think we talk lots about Senkos should be on the senior leadership team. And I think I I I feel 
that that is clearly helpful in the right school and for the right person. Actually, if you're if it's your first leadership role in the school and you're thrust into meetings with deputy heads and head teachers, actually that can be that can be more harm than help in some ways because you can suddenly um, a feel a bit out of your depth, uh, b not have that professional support that you need because we were on the senior leadership team, so it's up to you, mate. Um, and three, you can be um um. Uh, you there was a three I forget what three was but it was a very good one um but the but the point being that you're in that leadership role that um perhaps you don't feel oh, oh I know what it was number three was about being given several different things to do so now you're on SLT you are in charge of you know x and y and z oh and by the way while you're here a b and c so that's um, actually, I can say I hate that the fact you're the yes. senko means you're SLT not yes. oh you need to be SLT you need the ten more response no the senko is the responsibility yeah. which makes them the SLT I've, I didn't realize that I came across that for the first time about a year ago and I didn't know schools were doing this mm. I just thought no the senko role means you're in an SLT and when the mm. head teacher and the deputy are talking about doing this your job is to go what about special needs how does mm. this impact special that is basically. Sure. To me, as a Senko's role in that senior leader meeting is every time they talk about something, it's kind of your role is to make sure you're saying, and what about SEN? Yeah, I totally agree. Until they are saying it Mm. without you prompting them. Yeah, and it's about um, not... It's not particularly about being there when the agenda is send. It's about being there when the agenda isn't send. The only thing I'd say about that is if you've got someone and it is, the, you know, they're a really great classroom teacher and they have great kudos in the school for their, their classroom practice, but it's their first role of this of this nature and they're in their second to third year of teaching. Actually, the most important thing for me is not that they are on the senior leadership team, but it's that they have a really good, close working relationship with, a, with you know, their line manager, who's presumably, let's say, a deputy head, who then advocates for them at the senior leadership level the senka comes along to some of those meetings and and either receives the minutes or sees the agenda and feeds in their own view so uh, and they do you know if that person also happens to be the teaching and learning lead i think that's great and again this is more relevant to secondary than primary but if they if if the senka is line managed by the teaching and learning lead then you don't get that problem of day one the teaching is this day two uh, the senka says the teaching is that and with things like you know however you monitor teaching in your school and it might be observations it might be learning walks it might be something a bit more collaborative but actually that senko needs to be absolutely a part of that process of firstly articulating what we want to see in classrooms while appreciating that all classrooms and subjects and things are you know there is a level of difference but there's a level of this is good and that isn't as well that, that is that is a bit more universal i think um uh, and also so in terms of articulating what good teaching is but also in terms of articulating um uh, it as you go along, you know, feeding back from observations, learning, walks, however it's done in your school. Actually, the Senko is absolutely integral to that because you, what what I've seen in schools is is people have to vary what they're doing depending on who's watching, and that's a nonsense, clearly. And the point of the point of um, any kind of um, monitoring of teaching practice shouldn't be about turn it on to this when Sonto walks in. It needs to be about how can how can someone support a teacher to have really well in, well embedded good teaching habits that ultimately help all students. And the Senko needs to be absolutely part of that, to, 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 to quality assure that, to feed into that, to, to make sure that all senior and middle leaders have the same sort of language, basic language of what good teaching learning is. And again, to bring it back to this SEN in mainstream guidance report, I think Senkos need to absolutely make it their business to know that there is evidence around explicit instruction, cognitive and metacognitive strategies, um, scaffolding, flexible grouping, and using technology, so that in those conversations with senior and middle leaders, they can go, well, actually, 
are you are we talking about scaffolding here let's have a look at this together or are we talking about cognitive strategies because actually the teacher just spoke at that class for 15 minutes without a breath and this total cognitive overload for all the students there especially those with send and so how might we look at some um, strategies to be put in place which aren't deeply technical which aren't deeply send specific and don't cost a penny um but they are around well let's let's think about the um the density of the text on my slides or let's think about the use of pause and repetition and questioning within my teacher exposition you know when i'm talking to the class actually how do i pause how do i repeat things how do i check for understanding and then adapt accordingly to speed up slow down go over something again um or think or well, th that child or these children irrespective of sense status seem to have some kind of misconception. So actually, when it comes to some independent work, I know these are the three or four that I'm going to do a bit of reteaching with before expecting them to be able to work. Or these are the students who might benefit from the scaffold I've thought about because they're still a bit unclear about either my instructions that I'm giving them or about the the, the knowledge they need to be able to do the task well, for example. And it is, it's just a few changes. And it might be for some children, you are giving that 15 minute talk and you kind of need to explain, especially I think about science and these things, we try to explain a concept and a topic and introduce them. You, it might just mean that you can do that, but you it's best not just just talk. You probably find a bullet point or visual aids on a projector will help. But also for some children, you might just have to have it written down. So you can speak it, but actually for a couple of children, they can access it in a written way. And stuff like Google Classroom is so good for doing stuff in secondary schools if people allow tech in classrooms in your school because it means they can just go read it. They're listening to you and they're reading it. And a number of times I've, I've done something like that where I've listened, I've gone and read, and I've gone, and I've then gone, okay, I just want to check that one word out because I'm not quite sure of what that means. Go look at that and go, ah, and then they go back, and now I've understood that word, I reread it again. But other people will just get it like that. They've just got it and they're off and it's great. But I just, I got stuck. I get stuck on something. I need to go research. I look at it and it's giving children the independence to do that. Um, and under, to me, which again is a challenge in a school setting. Um, but I think it's a few little changes. As you said, it's not big changes. It, we're still doing the same topic. We're still doing it this way. But some, as you said, lots of children will struggle with 15 minutes on a brand new topic on a, they've never heard of visual clues, prompts on a whiteboard, things they can just make notes on, um, but also sometimes having it written down. I know my, my nephew has dysgraphia, so the idea of him making notes would just, he wouldn't be able to read them afterwards, they would be spelt wrong. So just giving it to him in a printed version or allowing him to take a photo of what's on the whiteboard would be a really big difference. Yeah. And it wouldn't and it wouldn't harm anyone. That's also the point, isn't it? Yes. It wouldn't be unhelpful for anyone. And I think where we when we think about what what's most realistic in terms of um what we're asking teachers to do, and it's not printing out, you know, five things yeah. on five different coloured backgrounds in five different fonts because that's slightly more preferable. You know, we've got to be able to do things at the universal level wherever possible, with the Senko helping to the, the students know how to advocate for themselves, helping teachers towards some really good adaptations that will work that won't mean they're up to midnight planning and so things like um there's some really good evidence outside of strictly of send that is really useful i think so for example around worked examples so um it's going to really help children according to the eef's research if we think about metacognition so 
actually, what does that look like in a class? Well, that might look like a teacher putting something up on the board and solving the problem in front of the class and not going, um, you know, here's a, here's a completed paragraph that I've done. Use that to inform the one that you're now going to go and do. Off you go. Because actually to promote that idea of metacognition, what you would do as a teacher is you'd work through that process. Well, I want to start with, you know, whatever, front end of verbal or this brand new, you know, bit of vocabulary that, that is a hot word for the week. I want to get that in my first sentence. So can I start with it? No, that's a bit clunky. So let's put in this and, and then that becomes in the second part of my compound sentence. Whatever, you know, I'm giving fictitious examples clearly, but actually the process of showing children what the struggle is, if you like, and narrating yeah. that process of learning is is metacognition. And it also shows students not just sort of what they need to know but also how they need to how how they learn and how they go through that process of learning and so that's not strictly a bit of evidence with that exists um in isolation within send but the evidence supports that metacognition is really helpful within send and it's something that a teacher can do often live often without any preparation particularly apart from a bit of thinking of you know what's this process what's the what's the thing i'm narrating and, and showing um but it really just opens up that learning to all learners rather than a process of being informed by learning styles is your primary thing which evidence shows is largely ineffective and then going right well you're visual learners so here's your lesson you're kinesthetic so you go and do it and um you know you're auditory learners so listen to me talk and which creates three different lessons for three different children with a sort of slightly fictitious differences in how they learn. This is, so this actually, is where, so this is why I love tech comes in. Cause if you kind of, let's say you use Google clock, I've not used it from the mm. teacher's point of view, but if I, my, I see it from my daughter's point of view, where there's lots of resources. So she's in the lesson or she's um, off with COVID or she has been, okay. she accesses the same lesson. So I think what they do is they kind of use Google classroom to do planning and drop resources in which is great. Mm. So my daughter was able to keep up with her schoolwork from home because mm. she could access the resources. But it does mean that if you do have that block of text, you're going to talk about it. If you can type it up and drop it in Google Docs, then the child who needs that size 28 font can zoom in on the text. The child who needs an overlay, well, they can change that on their screen. The child mm. it needs it read to them a couple of times can have it read to them a couple of times. And none of that, all those different variations, there's no printing, there's no extra work. It's, it's typed out once, and then it can be accessed in lots of different ways by different people. And it also means they have that at home as well. So if they, if they really were struggled, they can go home and look at it and work on it. And it also means the TA can help advise and things. So to me, I'm hope, I really hope with the uh, pandemic that we are moving away from tech is evil to tech is actually really amazing we shouldn't be scared of it we should it's one of those reasonable adjustments that you've really got to try um and and push and see how it works before dismissing it um so my daughter's school they do kahoot quizzes and things like that okay yeah and lots of things and they may really make good use of it so when they're doing um Drama. The script goes into Google Classroom. All the children get their phones out and they have their own script on their phone. No printing. Okay. It's just lots of little bits and each child can make the font bigger or smaller. Yeah. And I think we are we need to support students towards greater self-advocacy as they get as they approach adulthood, don't we? And actually yes. what can you do in terms of advocating for yourself by asking for a certain adaptation or even better, being able to put it in place yourself. 
And and one bit of technology that I think is is incredibly impactful is a visualizer. For that same reason I discussed about worked examples is, you know, you bring up a child's work in front of the board and we look at it together and identify the strengths or based on your knowledge of the child and, and you know, how they feel about you doing that, identifying how could we improve this piece of work and making sure that's live. So again, it's not a, here's a textbook example that seems a bit alien to you, but here's something you've peer created that I'm going to show you you know, I'm going to annotate on it and look at it together. I think there's, there's real power in that as an example of use of technology that actually seems to me to be the, the most risk-free, whereas, you know, I can see people having, um, having la- I don't mean risk in a sort of darker sense, but, you know, people having laptops, teacher can't always see what the child's on, there's a bit of distraction potential. potential. You know, those are the things that, that you need um, that I think put teachers off a little bit and there are ways yeah. around that, of course, and speech to text and text to speech, they can be great, but I think teachers feel a little less control over the class and that's perhaps some of that hesitancy, but actually using a visualizer for the whole class to help just to sort of make that process of learning live and shared and a teacher get writing a model example in front of the class and writing a mistake on purpose and the students spotting it in you know, all that kind of, that that's real learning. Yeah. That's totally live. And I think, I think that's where technology has a real place as well in particular. Yeah, I think re- whole rearranging sentences. The thought of doing that on paper would just kill me because I, I I sit there, <laughs> I do I do like a brain dump. My head, it just comes out of my head, and I end up with twelve pages, and I read it and goes, that is, and I completely rearrange the whole sections of the document. Mm. Where I'm, I've realised on page four, I'm talking about something which I haven't even introduced yet. Yeah, yeah I realise I haven't yeah. introduced it. So that's on page eight. So let's rearrange that. And then, as you said, you read sentences and go, I completely apparently read. Yeah. The idea of doing that on paper. Yes. <laughs> my process is get it out of my head. And I might, I will really, t- I literally, I'll get there and go, how have I typed that much? Wow. Mm. And read it all and go, oh, this is really rubbish. But mm. it's not. It's just, I need to structure it and order it and arrange it. Um, and maybe um, I've said it, I've used miles too many words <laughs> as I was coming out of my head. And I can just rearrange those sentences and completely transform it. What is the focus of this sentence? What is it that I really want to talk about? It's that bit. That's the impact. So that's, and it's just doing that really was an amazing skill. I've only really picked up in the last five years. Okay. Um, at the age of 40-something. I've only picked up in the last five years the power of doing this. And it's partly going to my daughter's school, learning about SATs and all the importance of all this English and all these rules and learning about it. I went, oh, I could do this. Yeah, I could edit myself. Yeah, I'm reading Barack Obama's autobiography at the moment, and he talks in the preface, I think, about um, I hand wrote this basically, and it's enormous. You know, it's it's 700 pages long, something, and this is only part one. Um, wow. But he says he hand wrote it because to type it gives the impression that something is finished when actually it's it, you know it's a fake impression of something being finished, whereas to see it handwritten gives the sense of this is still a draft. And I, but I I wrote this book, The Lone Senko, last year, and to think of handwriting it would be just horrible <laughs> as a, i don't like re, i don't enjoy redrafting as it is but actually redrafting on paper yeah horrible oh uh, yeah so I, I go to my schools i literally go no please just get them to tech use it it's amazing but yeah it is it is when you can't see those screens it's it's that trust there are ways around it but there's a whole money and uh training and another level on teaching and another there's a load to it which i think we're going to get there in the next five to ten years but I personally think um, tablets are better than laptops because they're lighter and easier and things like that. There are benefits. But, yeah, there's so many benefits. Um, it's just 
it's it's kind of you've got to kind of give a certain amount of trust and you might find yeah for the first week and a half they are not doing what they're supposed to and then kind of that boredom will disappear Mm. that that boredom and they'll get back to what they're doing because we've all lost a bit of interest on doing this while we're doing it and we'll do this but you can also then do like google docs when you're all editing the same document and my daughter's done this at school and it's got really interesting they all put in their own notes in so they have shared notes and things like that and it's just i love the fact because we do that at work we 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 do have shared documents where we're commenting back and forth and i just think it is really preparing people for the next generation their next step yeah and if you have if you have children using a laptop in class actually what you can't do is have them you know they try and save it but they might not have and has it gone in the right folder then they need to go back to the inclusion department for someone to help them to to network it to a printer and then to print it out take it back to the teacher you know these this is where the system falls down isn't it and actually using a shared typing on on google docs and things shared documents actually it's just you know as soon as it's I've finished typing it. It's with my teacher, and they then they can monitor it without all that sort of faff. I mean, that's that's the way it has to be, clearly. Yeah, and they can just go in and comment on things. They don't even have to. What I love about commenting, it's not red pen. <laughs> it could be a comment from a peer. So you read each other's stories and you comment on them, um, or it could be a teacher. But it's I I I, I we get commenting. I did a spreadsheet work the other day. I'm not a fan of spreadsheet. I did spreadsheet. I had 100 and something comments back, which I went through. I'd made <laughs> lots of little mistakes. We changed things. But it was all like, oh, yeah, sorry, I didn't mean to do that. Oh, yeah, you're right. Yeah, I've got to change that. And it was just, it was a nice conversation and it was really easy. And if you have got a child, again, when we talk about like marking, if there's huge, if there's huge numbers of mistakes, just pick one area to work on. If it mm. is captain, you've made 5,000 mistakes, just go. Indeed. Okay, we'll just focus on these 100 mistakes. Yeah. <laughs> and again, when you're given that feedback, it's, you can give lots of detailed feedback um, asynchronously. Yes. So you as a teacher can write all that feedback when it's good time for you. And they can read that when it suits them. And if needed, you can follow up. So if they haven't responded, you can follow up in the moment. But if you're trying to give that level of feedback, typically it requires you to do it face to face, which can be how do I give this much feedback without making them feel they're being treated differently or they are different or it's negative or it's this. It's how can I do that in a way that no one else will notice that they kind of get in that. There's lots of tech, which I love hides can hide things for a good, in a good way. Yeah. I was used to be a bit more selective about the feedback and actually find patterns in the feedback where I think generally it's accepted that teachers should be spending a bit less time marking than was probably promoted when I started teaching and actually marking should be about finding um, finding patterns and giving feedback to the class largely and then expecting students through self and peer marking or through seeing what the teachers put as a set of, you know, stu- many students found these things hard or need to change these things, then a bit of self-correction of your work. You know, th- those approaches that make, that mean that students don't sort of just hand over the process of um, of marking entirely to a teacher who then writes it and the child may or may not read it, may or may not act upon it, um, but actually to make, make, make children and pupils a bit more involved in that whole process. Yeah, I, I think, yeah, there's lots of benefits. And I, yeah, I do, I am interested to see how schools will change things going forward um, with tech. Um, I think it will... Comp- with reality, we really should think about the school day and things like that and literally almost having time, like maybe 45 minutes in a day of 
um, almost like reflective time. So children literally have, and staff have 45 minutes to give feedback on various things, and children have 45 minutes. It's not a directed lesson, but it is kind of time is spent looking at that feedback you've received and making changes. And or using that 45 minutes going, I struggled with this, I've got time to get help or things like that. And it doesn't always have to be face-to-face. And there are lots of different ways we can do things. I think when you start getting mats and you've got lots of geography specialists or history specialists across mats, that actually you can now start doing cross-school things. Or sure. At, so it, I, get, I get really excited by it. Um, mm. But I think we've got a long way to go, but I think stuff like Teams and Google Docs and all that sort of stuff is getting as much closer. Yeah, and, th- and then it's that, it's that balance, isn't it, of, of thinking about really good intervention that doesn't take children away from their teacher and doesn't take children um, you know, for long periods away from the, the, the teaching expertise that they need to benefit from, but also then thinking um, children need a balance, don't they, of um, they, they need teacher-led input in significant amounts in order to support and lead and guide their journey, they also need time for independent practice and time to try and really, you know, go through those procedures and practice those skills and those things that, 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 that the teachers shown them, supported them with, guiding them through, guided them through, and then they're at the point of needing to do it on their own. And and yeah, yeah how that how that exists over a lesson throughout a timetable, that's clearly, you know, challenges for schools to to address. Yeah, definitely. Do you think we've covered enough today? I think so. Yeah. What do you think? <laughs> I think we have. It's one of the things I always love the fact we come on, we have this podcast talk about evidence-based decision-making and then we go off on lots of tangents, which it is. And I think one of the things I will kind of end on is we often have evidence which will promote a point of view, but we sometimes don't have any evidence because we haven't been able to connect, collect it on the other point of view. Mm. So the one that I'm, I am, I am Mr. Tech. I love tech. I am purely digital. I hate paper. I have paper around me because people hand me paper, but I am Mr. Digital and tech. Um, I love it. It makes so much sense to me. It makes my life easier. I work at home. I can go into the office and the book I document, I save. So the script that I write for the podcast with all the notes that you send me, I did at work. I come home. They're already here. I don't have to do anything. It's great. Um, and people, and I sit there and I think about my, my nephew's dysgraphia, that when he was given a laptop, it removed the job, biggest barrier, which was his handwriting and his spelling. And he made the most progress of any child in his whole school. And he won a really prestigious award in his school for the amount of progress because mm. the school had finally removed the barrier. And I say this to people, and sometimes I get people going, oh, yes, but writing is, is part of learning. There's all these studies shown that making notes and writing really embeds the learning. It's like, yeah. But that's often when we've only had writing or mm. writing has happened for 90% of the time, and then we've gone on to computers and you haven't done that. Sure. But you've kind of learned that's the way. But what we've never really done is a study of someone who's just ever used a keyboard mm. and actually yeah. gone, how do we look at it the complete opposite way? We haven't ever had someone who's done a keyboard for 90% of the time and then go, well, let's teach them mm-hmm. to write. Is writing useful, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's, sometimes we don't have the entire picture. Yeah, and then and within that, when, when you then point towards evidence, you know, it's about what good evidence is. And, and I, you know, the, the processes that the EEF go through make sure that the, the evidence that is created is, is independent and is rigorous and 
on the, as you alluded to with the teaching and learning toolkit, they tell you it, in the currency of padlocks how secure that evidence is. So it may be that it's not particularly, you know, it was more than 10 years ago and it wasn't a school in England, so we're going to take a padlock off. And so it's not got quite the level of security and we're being very explicit with you about that. And the EEF publishes every single bit of um, research it finds. Um, uh, so so uh, the research that it, it creates and funds itself to happen as a trial, um, but also where it synthesizes evidence as well. It's all published and the process by which the evidence has been um, has been gathered or has been created is all published as well. So there's nothing that happens in secret and there's nothing that happens um, which is just sort of for the highest bidder. You know, there are... Lots of packages and programs aren't there, are there, who will say, you know, our evidence shows that it makes, you know, 36 months reading age progress in a week. And, you know, <laughs> and you've got to look at that evidence base and go, but you've commissioned that and done that yourself. And no one's really stood independently and gone, is that is that actually, um, you know, is there any legitimacy to this claim? And so, you know, the, the, it's worth going to evidence sources such as the EEF, where there is a clearly um, a clear and very transparent process around um uh, saying saying whether something works or not. I, I love watching, and make, I think makeup and face cream adverts are the worst for this, but it's, gen, it's generally beauty products which or anything which is opinion-based. And you'll see a claim come up that 97% of women say that blah, 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 and you go, right, I look at the bottom of the screen and it says, of 114 people <laughs> survey, 90 agreed. You're going, okay, so oh, 114 who? <laughs> Mm. It's in most of the time when I see these claims on the TV, as soon as you hear that number, look at the bottom. They have to tell you mm. the data set. Mm. And it is phenomenal. One of them I saw was 20, the data set was 20 something people. Okay, wow. And you're like, wow, there is evidence, but it's like literally me going to Man United Stadium and going, who thinks Man City are rubbish? Oh, I asked 10,000 people. Or as a parent, as we say, you know, my. Both my children like cake, so all children like cake. You know, yeah. many children like cake, admittedly, but um, but yeah, we look for a, a larger sample size. But if 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 you are doing something in your school, and then you go to EEF and it says no, it's not working, because it really is in my school. You can do your kind of your own research of why do we think it's working, and it might be it is working in your situation because of X, Y, and Z, or it might be from the position you're coming at. It might be this is one of the steps you kind of do anyway, which is why if you're doing it as it, so it might be working. Hmm. But if you're doing it going, why is it says it's not working? Well, I think it is. Do your own research, sit there and go, right. Ask the, ask the staff, ask the children, ask the parents. It doesn't necessarily have to be an upwards graph. Yeah, but also we might look at what are the proxies for something working or not, and actually sometimes they're wrong, aren't they? So it might be yeah. that we're looking at um, it's working because the kids enjoy it, um, and it's not to say children shouldn't enjoy school, but if we're if we're presumably with the kind of thing you and I are talking about, we're looking for something beyond enjoyment as well, some kind of, you know, which is supporting progress in school of some kind. Um, it could be that even because children are engaging in it, well, engagement, does, again, doesn't necessarily mean development of whatever the, the skill is that we're trying to promote and further through this intervention. So we might think it works because it's neatly dovetails into our timetable the children are silent they just get on with it um and they don't moan about it and you know that might all feel like good indicators of something working but actually um yeah it's worth thinking about what those indicators are i think and it might have been you started doing it because a child really struggled with something so you've started doing it and it's kind of done its job 
Yeah. But you could now phase it out. So they might not really hated school. So you're like, okay, they're not really engaging with school doing it. Let's do this fun activity. You all start doing it. And then now the issue's moved on. It's like, you probably could stop doing that now. It's not actually giving a benefit. It's engaged them in school. It's engaged them in the classroom. It's removed some of the challenges for that child. And how so we could probably remove that because he's learned actually it's school is. So sometimes it's something which will work and it has an impact for a short period of time. But as you just said, you kind of keep doing it because they enjoy it. Yeah, well, exactly. And it could be linked to whole school changes as well. So if there's a real push on the on the teaching of reading through the, you know, through curriculum delivery, actually, if that improves across the school, then it could be that at one stage, um, this intervention thing that we did really supported improvements to reading. But actually, what we're seeing now is that the, whole, the there are improvements to reading happening across our school because of the way we teach reading through our curriculum. And so we are seeing improvements in this cohort of children in the intervention, but it's not really because of the intervention. Actually, it's what they're getting in classroom is better. And so they, they, they don't need to come out and they don't need the separate yeah. thing because they are making progress, but actually they'd make progress without without your thing, especially if the evidence suggests that it's it's not an, you know, not an evidence-informed thing to be doing. So it is a case of you can't just grab something, shove it in. You can't just grab something and stop it. Yeah. You've got to really go... Why is it working or why do I think it's working? Why, if we do this, does it, is it just, it, it, you can't just sit there and go, I need this, what do I do? Do this. Okay, that will never work. Yeah, with, with a slight acknowledgement as well that actually the evidence base around specific sort of programs um, isn't, isn't comprehensive either. So the EEF have got a projects page on their website. So if you just Google EEF projects, it'll come up with um, a list of all the programs for which there has been a, a trial to, to, to ascertain its effectiveness led by or funded by the EEF. And so, for example, Lexia, it says for Key Stage 1, it's X amount of progress, X amount of month progress for students on this trial. So there are a couple of hundred examples of that on the EEF website. Um, and there's some outside that as well. So the Communication Trust has a similar thing, but specifically within speech and language, for example. There's Greg Brooks, um, What Works for Children with Literacy Difficulties, which is very well known about, I think. So there's there's various places to go and find actually where, where is the evidence base um but it's not comprehensive and it won't cover everything so sometimes you look sometimes you're left going okay well there isn't a, a, an evaluate there isn't an evaluative process that's happened about this particular um program thing that i'm being sold and that i can buy but actually if it's a phonics program for example what the, you'll see on the teaching and learning toolkit is that a phonics approach to reading is a is a positive one is likely to to support students in their development of reading um and actually um that phonics led approach you might you might not have a specific um package that's been evaluated rigorously but the the broad approach of 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 um, using phonics is your thing primarily for reading. Actually, it has strong evidence. So sometimes it's about the specific thing you can pick up and buy, and sometimes clearly it's more about the, the the broad approach that that thing that thing uses. And if you can't find a research from EEF or anyone else, is use uh, Facebook groups and things like that because you can sit there and go, does anyone use this? What are the pros? What are the cons? What challenges have you found? Don't just ask. Did it work? Yes. Well, it's it kind of 
get more information, sit there and go, yeah, but actually we tried to do this, this didn't work, so you had to... Because mm. sometimes you buy it and go, right, we'll stick it in, one hour a week, it will fix everything. Yeah, sure. Often yeah. it isn't going to be one hour a week, it's a whole school thing. And... Yeah, and you can learn, learning from colleagues' experiences is, is essential, clearly, yeah. And I think things like Facebook groups are really good for the logistics. How much of a pain is this to try to try and implement? Or how much is it actually quite quite simple to do so? And then clearly you want other sources if we're looking for, you know, where's the the evidence base that shows that the, the efficacy of this of this particular program but i think i agree with you that speaking to colleagues who are doing it who are senkos it's really helpful for going um is this going to be um you know does this feel like a thing that people can embrace quite easily and that we can do with the with our current team or are there um is this going to be something that we have to get whole school sort of buy in from them you know from right from the top if we're going to implement this effectively and someone else might share something that's really worked for them. They might have really gone, actually, we've done this as a whole school. Thing. And they might give you some really in-depth information, which would just give you more confidence. Hmm. Um, but it'll also, I generally, I, I love watching them go, oh, yeah, we did that. But um, it was, we had really had to get the teachers buy-in because of this. And you're going, oh, so I've already been told, given a barrier, which I now can work out how to overcome. But then I could also go, but why didn't they buy in? Is there an issue with it? So it generally, it would just give you lots of information, I find. but. Yeah, research base is going to be the best place to start. Um, but I generally, with anything, if you're going to try something in your school, don't just take the company's word for it. Yeah, mm. even if you're yes. going to buy B squared, which we are amazing, we are the best thing ever. We're the we are the best, the only one. But go in a group and ask a teacher. Yeah, ask ask asking your local Senko cluster meetings. Go and find out from someone. Do you use B squared? What's the benefit? What's the negatives? What's the impact been? How long? Ask those questions. Yeah. That is the best thing because I will tell you it's an amazing system. It's going to cost you this much. It's realistically going to take this long. But I can't tell you because I've never been in a school as a teacher. I can't tell you what it will be like in your school bringing it on. I can't tell you how your teachers will think it. I don't know what your other systems are. The best way of you finding out is asking other colleagues. So start with research, but find out, especially if you can't find a research product on B squared, because we just measure things. We there's no effectiveness because measure was it weighing a pig doesn't make it fatter <laughs> is a famous saying. Yeah. I think there's lots of benefits to uh, measuring, but it won't specifically increase something but it can show something's not working. Um, but so you won't find things, but yeah, word of mouth, um, recommendations. I would really, if you're unsure, don't just buy something because someone's told you it's amazing. Talk to schools and find out if it is amazing or is it just a sales technique? So thank you for coming on the show today, Gary. Absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me, Dale. I've enjoyed the discussion. You've given me some links to share. I'll try and remember to put the projects one in yeah, as thanks. well. Thank you. Um, and I'll add those to the show notes. And also, um, am I sharing your contact details? Is that okay? Um, yeah, no problem. Yeah. I forgot to check in the, before I did this. I forgot okay, to check yeah. that's in there. So <laughs> you'll find those it in our It depends what detail. Show notes. Don't give my home address, but yeah. Okay, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> so um, thank you for listening. If you haven't subscribed already, please subscribe. You can find the links to subscribe across all the different podcast platforms on our website, www.thesendcast.com. Please follow us on social media. On Twitter, we are at The Sendcast. On Facebook, we are The Sendcast. On Instagram, The Sendcast. And if you listen to us through iTunes or Apple Podcasts, please leave us a review and let others know what you think. And also buy Gary's book. I have actually, I've not read your book, but I have seen it come up a lot on um, 
uh, Facebook group. So Gary's going to tell you again, his book is amazing. Um, But I'm going to use the evidence base that I've seen (laughs) (laughs) on Facebook groups where I've seen lots of people sharing, I'm reading this, and you just see then the follow-up comments of Reddit, loved it, loved it, loved it. I don't know if you've seen those, Gary, and gone, woo, lovely. Well, I try I try not to live my life seeing how I'm doing online, but I have had an occasional dip into it and then uh, and then turned off quickly before reading any uh, anything otherwise. Yeah, thanks. So, generally, all, everything I've seen about the book has, all, has been very positive. So, uh, yeah. Uh, and before I go, I'd just like to remind you to check out the Training for Education website. You'll find a number of the guests on the Sendcast are speakers at our virtual Send conferences. Um, and training for education is a great way to get CPD to all staff around SEND that is effective and affordable. We said earlier that initial teacher training around SEND and SEND training in just general isn't getting to every teacher. It's often just getting to the SENCO. So for us, training for education, our virtual SEND conferences are really good at getting um, training. So the conference is about £60 for the entire school. And for that, you get 12 sessions, which you have forever. So that way you can train current staff and future staff. Each session is around 45, 50 minutes. You can use it on inset days. You can use it in twilight sessions, or you can even just say, we're not having a twilight session today. You will go home and watch it at home, make notes. We'll discuss it next week. So lots of different ways you can use it, but it means you can get all staff and that's just not teachers. You can get um, TAs and other staff in the school training around various different areas. Um, and you can visit www.trainingforeducation.com for more information. And as an exclusive gift to our Sendcast listeners, you can get 10% discount on the virtual Send conferences, future or past, by using the code Sendcast10. So thank you for listening. We'll be back soon with another episode of the Sendcast. It's goodbye from me. Goodbye. Thanks very much. Cheers. Bye. <laughs>